Uh, thank you. Thank you, Greg, and welcome to this podcast, uh, an event in the Scottish Parliament looking at the UK internal market. I am the Constitution, Europe, External Affairs and Culture Committee's Deputy Convener. Uh, my name is Donald Cameron. Uh, unfortunately, the committee's convener, Claire Adamson, MSP, is uh, unable to join us due to illness. Um, however, I'm delighted to be joined here this morning by two of our committee advisors, Professor Michael Keating on my right and uh, Dr. Chris McCorkendale on my left. And we are here in the Holyrood Room with a live audience. Uh, and I'd like to also acknowledge two of the uh, committee members, Sarah Boyack and Jenny Minto, MSPs, who are here with us today as well. Um, last week, the committee published a report uh, looking at the UK internal market as a result of an inquiry that we have undertaken over the last few months. And this looked extensively uh, at the UK Internal Market Act, uh, which was passed by uh, UK Parliament following uh, the UK's departure from the EU. Um, and in our report, I think it's fair to say we identified three major uh, and related tensions which are either uh, created from or made worse by the UK leaving the EU. And we plan on exploring uh, these in turn today, um, so you know what's coming. But those three tensions are um, a tension between open trade uh, and regulatory divergence, a tension, uh, secondly, within the devolution settlement itself, uh, and thirdly, a tension between uh, the executive and the legislature, uh, a kind of um, separation of powers tension, as it were. And before um, we look at each of those in turn, can I firstly ask our, our two advisors for your brief um, overall view on the committee's report? And uh, Michael, if I can start with you, if that's okay. Uh, thank you. The committee has usefully highlighted the implications of the Internal Market Act for devolution. Officially, it doesn't change the competence of the Scottish Parliament or the Northern Ireland Assembly or the Welsh Senate, but in fact, it has the provision which says that any goods that are, can be sold on the market in one part of the UK or imported into that part, that part of the UK can also be sold in any other part of the UK. This means that the regulatory capacity of the devolved governments could be undermined because they wouldn't be able to control goods coming into Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland, or indeed England for that matter. The UK government has said that the devolved governments and parliaments will have the same degree of discretion as they have within the European or had within the EU single market. But in fact, the EU single market provisions provide for many more exceptions to that and so allow the member states and indeed parts of member states greater capacity to regulate than might be the case in the UK single market bill. That, 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 that's something that's clearly highlighted by the committee. They also drawn attention to the need for accountability, transparency in this whole process, because now we've got a very cluttered intergovernmental landscape. We've got the internal market bill, we've got frameworks we may be talking about later on, we've got the new intergovernmental arrangements, and there's a danger that parliaments and citizens won't be able to get a grasp of what is going on and hold governments accountable. So those are the two things that I would highlight that the committee has drawn our attention to. 
Uh, thank you, Michael. And Chris, if I could turn to, to, to you for a, a kind of general view on, on the report. Sure. So I think the issue that I would want to draw attention to from the report and, what, and, and an issue that I think the report itself um, draws um, a really useful um, degree of attention to is that in leaving the EU and establishing an internal market, this is largely sold or presented as a, a kind of technocratic exercise read over from the European Union and, 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 and the internal market arrangements that existed prior to withdrawal. But what it doesn't really lay bare is the constitutional impact of this new internal market. We've seen um, you know, moves or, or, or foundations for internal market or for economic union from the Act of Union through Section 14 of the Northern Ireland Act, through the Cobrandon Commission, which saw economic unity as, as, as um, on a par with parliamentary sovereignty as a fundamental constitutional principle. But we've never had to implement and operationalise it in the way that the, the post-EU internal market requires. And so not only does that raise issues for um, regulatory um, divergence versus convergence, but it also um, requires a, a, a kind of subtle um, recalibration or realignment of our constitutional arrangements. And I'll just highlight four that come through in the report. So the first one is we have an, a, an evolving understanding of legislative consent. Um, the Internal Market Act is one of a number of post-Brexit pieces of UK legislation that have gone through uh, despite the withdrawal or the withholding of consent by the Scottish Parliament. Um, and so we see the nature of consent change. Does, is there a requirement to, to obtain consent? Is there a, re a requirement merely to seek consent? And in what circumstances is it constitutionally appropriate to override consent? I think these are issues that the, the, that the report highlights well. We also see issues of consent. So at the same time that consent is evolving as a legislative principle, we see principles of consent seep into legislative language, where consent means something less than obtaining consent and more along the lines of seeking consent, whether that consent is given or not. So we've got a constitution, a territorial constitution that's based in consent and an evolving nature of consent itself we need to understand. We have new constraints on legislative and executive freedom, as Michael has said, so I won't say too much more about that, but, it, but to add that these include new powers for UK ministers to spend in devolved areas, which I think raise fundamental questions about the constitutional legitimacy, transparency and accountability for the exercise of those powers. Um, there is a twofold degree to which the, the, the role of Parliament is being, it may, might potentially be hollowed out by the internal market, whether that's because parliamentary debates and, 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 and the making of law by the Scottish Parliament and the devolved assemblies may be undermined by market access principles, mutual recognition and so on, that can extract from the substance of, of, of the Holyrood debates, or whether that's at the level of the Scottish Government and the Scottish Parliament and whether sufficient information flows from government to parliament in sufficient time with sufficient levels of detail in order for the Scottish Parliament to exercise its scrutiny function. And then finally, we have much more complex devolved boundaries by these new constraints, which means that we have a greater reliance on principles of shared rule, shared governance, but in a constitutional settlement where intergovernmental relations is notoriously weak and levels of trust 
between nations um, is not necessarily high. So I think the report sheds light on um, important issues of con fundamental constitutional <laughs> principles that aren't necessarily um, obvious from a, from a plain reading of the legislation to, which gives effect to it. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, so I'm, I'm now going to turn to the first tension that I spoke about that we identified, which is the tension between open trade on the one hand and regulatory divergence. And I think it, it's um, correct that there was a clear consensus in the evidence before the committee that the UK Internal Market Act places more emphasis on the former, on open trade, uh, than the latter, on regulatory divergence, especially when compared um, to the um, EU single market. So, Chris, could I ask you about that particular tension, especially in relation to policy innovation and regulatory learning, which the committee viewed was a key sort of um, aspect or, or indeed success of, of devolution? Yeah, good. So, the, the report and the evidence that feeds into the report, if you have the, the opportunity to read it, um, makes clear that there should be protection um, for the space for um, policy and regulatory learning, policy and regulatory innovation, um, as we adjust to the post-Brexit climate. That you know we are taking a step into the unknown. We don't have all the answers initially, and so it is a, it is a benefit to the UK in the post-Brexit landscape that we see experimentation in different areas and learn from how that experimentation unfolds. And there's plenty of examples of successful policy innovation and experimentation that is then rolled out. We might we see references to the 5p bag charge in Wales, which is rolled out. We see reference to the smoking ban in Scotland, which then is rolled out. We might think about minimum unit pricing of alcohol in those terms, observing and learning about the, the um, effects of, of, of policy innovation. Um, but what I would want to caution is that, for me, there, there's a more mixed picture than that. That um, there has been policy success with regard to the, um, with, with policy innovation and learning. But in some other areas, there's been uh, quite a significant failure to learn from innovation in the devolved areas. So, for example, if you take um, reform of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act um, at, at the UK level, there's almost no reference to the fact that devolved legislators have been operating according to fixed-term parliaments fairly uncontroversially since their inception. When you look at the um, judicial remedies in the new um, Judicial Review Courts Reform um, implementation in England, the, there's huge controversy over the prospect of non-retrospective quashing orders, with no reference to the fact that in the devolved setting these have been a feature of devolution for quite some time. So. It's, yes, we should praise and we should seek out opportunities for policy innovation and learning. But what that tells us is that we have to create both an environment and forums in which that can take place. An environment where policy innovation and learning can take place because, well, you know, do we have, first of all, the political culture that allows for experimentation? A policy laboratory, policy experiments, I think entail a degree of trial and error. And I'm not convinced that either within the territorial jurisdictions or across the, the United Kingdom, there's a culture that allows that room for error rather than presenting this as political failure, it, it, you know, 
or pardon me, presenting this as political failure and catastrophe rather than a, a, an ordinary aspect of policy learning and experimentation. Secondly, we need forums in order to allow policy learning and implementation to take place. That means regular engagement between an early engagement between governments and parliaments across the United Kingdom. That means um, institutionalised and informal forums in which these can take place. And of course, we've seen new intergovernmental relations forums and a new or a revived um, commitment to interparliamentary work over the coming years. But that needs to be met with opportunities for that cross-fertilisation to take place. That means a greater emphasis on evidence-based policy so that this evidence from elsewhere can feed into policy making. That means probably greater opportunities for sharing staff across uh, at official level, which um, I, I believe there are steps being taken to, to reignite that, that policy sharing experience. Um, and it means an audience that's willing to, to engage. You know, learning is not a one-way thing where it's enough to do something innovative. There has to be an audience that's willing in these forums to receive that information, to receive that evidence and to act on it. And I think that requires shared understanding across the UK about what evidence-based policy means, about how we understand and, and process and share data, about guidelines and guidance and, and key terms and phrases that give us a common language to speak when we're thinking about what policy innovation means and what lessons can be learned. Um, thank you, Chris. It's interesting. Uh, last week, um, in terms of parliamentary, interparliamentary working across uh, the United Kingdom, last week, the convener and I uh, and some of the clerks <clears throat> went to London for the first meeting of the Interparliamentary Forum, um, which is the successor to the Interparliamentary Forum on Brexit. And there were some quite um, sort of vigorous discussions about how best to for different legislatures uh, across the UK to to meet and what kind of structures should be used and how formal or, or informal they should be. Um, but um, I, I think there was a, a general sense that that we need to, to sort of rocket boost, if you, if you like, um, into parliamentary working um, uh, going forward. Um, Michael, um, the committee's view was that in resolving the tension between open trade and regulatory autonomy. Um, it's essential that the, the fundamental principles that, that um, underpin devolution um, aren't undermined. Um, and I think this was a, you know, a widespread uh, concern amongst many witnesses before the committee. Um, do you think that it's likely um, that the fundamental principles of devolution will not be undermined? If you're asking you to gaze into your crystal ball. Yeah, that crystal ball is pretty obscure these days because we just don't know how this is going to work out. The principle of mutual recognition means that goods produced or imported into one part of the UK, or at least GB, Northern Ireland is even more complicated, let's just stick to GB for a moment, can be marketed uh, elsewhere. And the danger of that is what we call a race to the bottom. That is, the goods produced in the jurisdiction which has the lightest regulations will face the lowest production costs, and therefore the other jurisdictions will be under pressure to follow those regulations down. The alternative scenario is a race to the top, which has happened to some degree under devolution. That is that ideas will be transferred from one part of the UK to another. There'll be policy innovation and an upgrading of, of standards of, of provision in various ways. Or there may just be diversity, that is tailoring regulations to local conditions. To avoid that race to the bottom that nobody really wants, there are various ways you can do it. There's the frameworks process, which we will get round to talking about, I think. But 
there's also the idea of minimum standards. Well, we should have some agreement that there will be a minimum standard. This is used in the European single market in various ways. That doesn't really feature in the Internal Market Act. It's mentioned in various places. It's not actually been brought in because there's been a consensus hitherto. We don't need minimum standards. It's not, maybe we've got to think about that. Uh, another factor, which is why there's so much uncertainty about this, is the external context and our future relationship to the EU and other international trading partners. The Trade and Cooperation Agreement with the EU is a framework within which things can develop. It doesn't specify very much. And possibly we may remain, as is the whole of the United Kingdom, de facto aligned with European regulations, because many of those are global regulations and global standards. And so the problem won't really arise. Um, but we now got a minister for what Brexit freedom is it, the Rees Mark, who's got the task of looking for ways in which we can deregulate. And there was just a regulation proposed yesterday for England. So there might be great divergence if the, uh, if the UK government in respect of England is going towards a more deregulatory uh, regime or is signing free trade deals, which will require open access for products from other countries that don't necessarily meet the standards in Scotland, but can be brought into Scotland. Then you've got a different scenario. Meanwhile, the Scottish government is pledged to try and keep pace. Uh, that again is, is very problematic about whether it really wants to do that, how this is going to work out, what the reasons for doing that are. But you can see a scenario in which the UK government is going for a more deregulatory uh, style, light, lighter touch regulation, and the Scottish government is aligning with EU regulations. And so the regulatory divergence will become bigger and bigger. And there's where you're going to get real problems. And I'm not convinced that the machinery we've got in place would be up to dealing with that degree of, of divergence. Uh, we, we just don't know. It depends on the scenarios and, and the international trading environment. And that, that brings me very neatly onto the, onto the second tension. Uh, and it, there is overlap in what we've just been talking about, about tensions within the devolution settlement. Our, our report notes that the UK Internal Market Act, unlike the single market, EU single market, doesn't provide a statutory mechanism for managing uh, the divergence that, that you've spoken about uh, prior to regulations being adopted. Um, you mentioned common frameworks as a possible mechanism. Uh, and there has also been the intergovernmental review and the, the, the three-tier approach that's been agreed um, by, by the devolved nations in the UK government. Um, do you see those mechanisms as being effective in the future? There's potential there. The, the frameworks process was developed rather separately from the internal market and it started earlier on, but they're being brought together. And the, it's not clear to me, however, exactly what frameworks are supposed to do. Uh, they're a pragmatic way of sorting out problems that might arise in changing inherited EU laws and making sure that there are no dysfunctions there, that the governments are aligned and can, can align or agree to diverge. But there's no overall template for this. And I, I, I've read them all. I had, to, I had to read them all a few weeks ago. And they're not easy reading. It's not, it's not light bedtime reading, I can tell you. Because they're all designed with specific sectoral needs in mind. There's no general principle. And some of them are very detailed. Some of them are very general. 
we can conclude that they're not about policy making as we might have anticipated, making joint policy. They're not generally about establishing minimum standards, which was also mentioned. They're mostly about how to manage regulatory divergence. They're mechanistic. They don't have a lot of policy content in them. And I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. They're not vehicles for policy making. They're about managing divergence. They're highly technical. They're managed at the official level. And again, you could say that's good to resolve problems at the technical level before they become political. But on the other hand, maybe things should be political. That is out in the open. Uh, and they just take very difficult formats and, and they're going to be extremely difficult for the parliaments, the various parliaments and legislatures to uh, scrutinize. And they are then on top of all kinds of other things. Now, there is a connection with the UK internal market. This is a result of an amendment in the House of Lords that if agreement has been reached in a framework, then that matter can be exempted from the internal market provisions. And that, that seems to be a, a positive development. It then constrains the operation of the Internal Market Act by consensus. And, and that process is, it seems to be proceeding. But then this only applies to retained EU law. So we've got one set of mechanisms that only deals with matters inherited from the EU. Which strikes me as a bit curious because these overlaps arrive in all kinds of other areas that are not inherited from the EU. And after a few years, the concept of retained EU law is going to look a little bit quaint because what's, what's left of it? It's, it's just, there's just, just a single statute book anyway. And then we need to know how this relates to the other intergovernmental procedures. Now, there are references in these frameworks to the memorandums of consent and joint ministerial committees now being replaced by interministerial committees and a new uh, apparatus. But once again, these have all been developed separately. So there's a lot of work needs to be done pulling all these things together. Uh, and because it's all been done in a very British way, pragmatically, let's address one problem at a time, looking at the whole picture. And, and then you've got the Office for the Internal Market that in some way patrols and it doesn't regulate the internal market directly, but, but it, it has an important advisory role around the internal market. And then we have the courts, because the UK Internal Market Act will be implemented by people going to court and saying that somebody is infringing the mutual recognition or non-discrimination principle. And we don't know which direction the courts are going to go in, or indeed whether our courts are equipped to do that kind of thing, because unlike the European Court of Justice, they don't have a track record in doing this kind of thing. And then Chris has mentioned the consent principle scattered all over the place now. We've got there's a consent mechanism, but nobody's really quite pinned down what consent means. It's something a bit more than consultation, but a bit less than that involves having a veto. And we saw what we happened to the Sewell Convention when that was challenged in court. It just didn't stand up to, uh, to legal scrutiny because it was a principle rather than a, a legal provision. So at some point, somebody's going to have to have a look at this whole landscape of intergovernmental relations, simplify it, codify it, and make it more transparent, because otherwise it's going to be extremely difficult for stakeholders, citizens or parliament to follow what's going on here. Thank you for that. And, and interesting to hear what you said about parliamentary scrutiny of common frameworks. I think, um, you know, it's something that um, MSPs are, are having to learn very quickly how, uh, because common frameworks are coming before subject committees uh, and did, did at the end of the, the last session of parliament. So it's, it's an interesting learning curve for us. 
too. Um, Chris, um, in, in relation to, to tensions within the devolution settlement, you've, you've touched on um, earlier issues of consent and um, uh, par parliamentary scrutiny, etc. Um, in terms of common frameworks, do you see uh, common frameworks as a good way of resolving tensions? Um, are there problems with them in your view? I think, so I suppose what I would say about common frameworks is that they are a way of resolving tensions. You know, there are multiple models that you can draw from across different, differently territorially organised states across the world. Um, and common frameworks is a perfectly legitimate way of um, resolving these kinds of tensions. Um, and probably more importantly now, it's the way that, that has been chosen. So for me, the question becomes less about is common frameworks the right decision uh, and now becomes how do we make common frameworks the right decision? How do we work together within devolution between Scottish Government and Scottish Parliament? How do we work across the devolved legislatures and executives in order to make the, the, the perfectly legitimate system that we've chosen work better? Uh, now, that's a vexed question for reasons that um, Michael and yourself have already um, recognised. But certainly what it means is um, earlier engagement between legislatures and executive. Um, certainly what it means is more and better consultation um, in order not only that common frameworks work at the level of constitutional principle, but they work at the level of implementation by understanding how these impact in foreseen and unforeseeable ways or unforeseen ways um, at, at, at the level at which these need to operate by, by listening to stakeholders and engaging with stakeholders. Um, and it certainly needs um, better and more regular and earlier reporting to Parliament in order that Parliament can undertake its important duty of understanding common frameworks, of understanding what they're seeking to achieve, um, of understanding how, how they might impact not just on the devolution settlement in Scotland, but also understanding, and this is where cross-parliamentary work and cross-government work comes in, how common frameworks and, and the implementation of the internal market more generally impacts, uh, uh, in other areas of the UK, impacts back here on the devolved settlement in Scotland. So if Wales or in Northern Ireland carve out exceptions to principles, then how is that going to impact back on what the devolved legislatures and executives can do at a practical level bearing in mind that they have to give mutual recognition and market access to standards that are set elsewhere. And that's one of the big tensions that's probably worth teasing out that's, that's maybe not played out in the report quite so significantly. Not only does this constrain devolution, but it can, at the level of principle, what, what, what it is in effect and in practice that the Scottish Parliament can do, but it constrains devolution in a new way in scope, because where previously setting standards um, in law would apply to goods coming into the UK, into Scotland, pardon me, as much as they would apply to goods produced in Scotland, these principles of market access and mutual recognition um, and the, the, the legal framework of the Internal Market Act means that Scottish legislation on food standards, for example, will apply to that which is produced in Scotland. But we have to recognise and give access to goods and services that are regulated differently, maybe to lower standards, um, as they come into Scotland as part of this internal market and this um, preference for open trade over, over regulation and, and um, divergence. Thank you. Um, I'd like to move on finally to the, to the last tension that I described at the beginning, that is the, the kind of separation of powers issue around the tension between the executive 
um, and the, the legislature, um, in particular, the risk that the emphasis on managing divergence at an intergovernmental level may lead, may lead to um, less transparency and less uh, accountability on behalf of the executive and a kind of tension in between the balance of power. Um, uh, what are your views, Chris, on how does, does Parliament and, in fact, the committee generally uh, address that risk? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the risk is clear. There is, there is a long-standing culture of secrecy in the, in the UK constitution, and that's not meant in a conspiratorial way, but just in, in the way in which, in which business is done at governmental and official level before information is shared and scrutinised um, through whatever parliamentary processes um, apply. And that seems to be the case uh, when it comes to the negotiation of common frameworks. We've seen, um, or, or intergovernmental relations dealing with Brexit more generally, there's a, there are, are regular issues raised, many of which feature in this report, both from parliaments across the UK, um, who have reported regularly on the, their frustrations about the inability to access information about the stage of negotiations, what is what is taking place, the lack of information that comes out in, in terms of communiques and, and reports following intergovernmental inter meetings. Um, and we see this too from stakeholders who are trying to make sense of how this is going to impact on them at a practical level and the inability that they have to access information in sufficient detail and sufficient time in order to react um, accordingly. So what can Parliament do? I mean, it's difficult to say. We've been trying to answer this problem for, for years. It's not a new problem. Um, it's a deeply long-standing one. I think what Parliament has to do is, is remember. So if I, if I take the, um, the process, and I won't go into details, but the process for um, giving devolved consent or Scottish ministers' consent into UK ministers exercising powers in devolved areas. The UK government, uh, pardon me, the Scottish government, the Scottish ministers have said that they will, that, that their um, default position will be to align unless there are good reasons not to, good reasons to deal with issues at the devolved level. And one of the things I really think it's important to stress and that Parliament and parliamentarians broadly defined need to bear in mind is that Devolved the role of Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, its scrutiny and legislative function is a good in and of itself. So no good reason to, to align you know, shouldn't mean that for purely pragmatic reasons, parliamentary timetable, capacity, um, convenience of um, your timing of implementation, that for purely pragmatic reasons, we hollow out the role of the Scottish Parliament, the devolved legislatures, in the exercise of its scrutiny function. So Parliament and the committee should be anxious to scrutinise um, why it is that the Scottish Government believes a measure is technical rather than policy related, and how, because that is a distinction that we know becomes blurred. Um, we have to engage early with Scottish Government in order to pressure the Scottish Government itself to engage early in intergovernmental relations so that information can come to the Scottish Parliament in a full form. Again, one of the complaints about the the consent procedure for UK ministers exercising powers in devolved areas is that you know often the committees don't see the 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 the, um, it, the proposal in any detail, if at all. Sometimes they're working off the the, the minister's um, recollection or officials' best recollection of where pro, where where um, negotiations lie. Um, oftentimes these arrive late, which reduces the time for scrutiny. Oftentimes they lack information. Um, and sometimes, as I said, they blur the distinction between purely technical and policy. So Parliament has to ensure that it anxiously 
scrutinises the claims made at the intergovernmental level, the level of information that comes out, the distinctions that are made to avoid, well, to, that, that might avoid parliamentary scrutiny, such as that between technical and policy-related information. And it has to be bold in, in, in its reporting function when it feels that it's not being served adequately by mechanisms of, mechanisms of intergovernmental relations. If it's not being served adequately by the Scottish Government reporting back, then it has to be bold and robust in its reporting mechanism to make that clear and to push almost embarrass governments at, at, at both levels into action. Thank you. I'm very glad you mentioned stakeholders because one of the, the key messages uh, in the evidence to, to, to the committee's inquiry was the desire on behalf of stakeholders to, to have input and um, the ability to, to um, be consulted on, on su such, such matters. So um, I think it's a very pertinent point to make. Uh, Michael, finally, um, as, as Chris said, this is not a new problem. Um, issues of transparency have existed um, over many years. Um, but what are your thoughts on how best parliament and, and committees of the parliament tackle this issue? Well, back in the early days of devolution, there was some discussion about whether we should have framework laws that exist in other countries where they have devolved or federal systems. And it was like, there shouldn't be. And I thought that was a, a good decision at the time. Now they're coming in uh, under the guise of the need to deal with retained EU law. But they raise the general principle about what we mean by frameworks. One interesting thing that very often has hardly been pointed out in regard to frameworks is for the first time they actually constrain what the UK government can do in respect of England because the UK government has to consult the devolves. It's not, it's not just one way and, and that, that's really an interesting principle but again only in regard to EU law. Uh, the frameworks as they're developing all seem to be non-legislative. They can be legislative or non-legislative frameworks. They've, they've, they've changed the, the wording slightly but that's the essential distinction. And <laughs> In one way, non-legislative frameworks are more flexible, they're easier, they're less formal. But on the other hand, non-legislative frameworks are very difficult to pin down and scrutinize. At least the legislative framework, you've got legislation, there is a process for, for dealing with it. So let's not always assume that these informal processes are the best ways of, of doing it. It's maybe just an intergovernmental agreement rather than a clear parliamentary framework. And another thing that's been around for a long time is the need for some impartial body to provide intelligence and analysis about these things in a way that is comprehensible so that parliamentarians will not have to read through all these frameworks like I did. You'll have it distilled there. Here's the issue here. Uh, here, here are the issues. And, and it's up to politicians, of course, to resolve those issues. And we do have a proposed secretariat in the new intergovernmental arrangements and some of us have been saying that could usefully be expanded there must be somewhere body that's responsible to all the parliaments not just one of them that provides the impartial analysis of these things and, and then allows the issues to be clarified so let's hope that that secretariat does take on that role and it will make it a great deal easier for the parliamentarians and the citizens and the stakeholders really to understand what the issues are and to focus on the important issues Thank you. Um, in terms of the podcast, um, unfortunately, we are out of time for that. Um, I think it's fair to say that our report uh, illustrates the complexity of the post-EU regulatory environment in Scotland, and that presents a, a massive challenge for policymakers, legislators, and those seeking to influence uh, policymaking and the legislative process. So our work in addressing this challenge as a committee is, I think, at the beginning 
And we are going to debate this afternoon in, in the chamber um, our report. So thank you uh, to uh, both um, Chris McCorkendale and uh, Michael Keating for joining us. Thank you. Those of, us, those of you who are listening to the podcast, thank you for joining us. And I would encourage you that anyone keen to find out more about the internal market and our report uh, to visit the Constitution Committee's website uh, on the um, Scottish Parliament website. Thank you.